All right. So I want to I want to jump in. Um, it, it, it from my view, it seems that Ukraine has become the fifty first state of the United States. We're essentially funding their government. We're keeping their people afloat using U.S. taxpayer money. Uh, however, Americans and especially Europeans are tiring of this war quickly. They're starting to protest. They're demanding peace. Uh, yet some NATO nations, including the United States, seem to want this war to drag out. Uh, will NATO only back off when Ukraine is destroyed or when Vladimir Putin dies or is taken out by his own regime? What are your thoughts on, on this situation? <clears throat> well, the first question is a valid one. How long do we wait before we finally give up uh, on trying to turn Ukraine into a permanent and existential threat to Russia? Because that's really what this is all about. We invested very heavily in Ukraine starting in 2014 to build this Ukrainian army that by the time the, the Russians intervened was about 600,000. That was a little over 400,000 regular troops with over 200,000 reserves. And it was aimed uh, exclusively at the destruction of Russia, first to attack the so-called breakaway provinces, Donetsk and Luhansk that were in the east, and then to go on and reconquer, if you will, uh, Crimea, which historically was never part of Ukraine or remotely Ukrainian, what was Russian, certainly since 1776. So at any rate, <clears throat> I think... To answer the first question is that it's unclear. We know that Washington, London, Paris, and Berlin have essentially sworn to stay the course. Uh, that picture, as you point out, is weakening very rapidly in, in Germany, where it was never popular to begin with. It's also faltering in France. London seems to stick with it, although I'm beginning to see some evidence of the truth getting through the British media to the British public. Not much, but some. Uh, the other the other country that seems uh, unalterably opposed to ending this is Norway. Uh, I, I have still not figured out why the Norwegians are so bent on the destruction of Russia, but apparently they've signed on for this. The problem with all of it, of course, is that there was never any strategy, uh, coherent strategy, with a specific strategic end state that was attainable. I mean, making these sweeping statements, uh, we won't quit until Putin is removed from power or dead. We won't stop until Russia is defeated in Ukraine. These are ridiculous statements that have no basis in fact, have no possibility of occurring. So that puts you in the uncomfortable position when you've made these ridiculous statements publicly to where you cannot retreat from them. And so London, Paris, Berlin, Washington are having enormous difficulty figuring out how do I retreat from these outrageous demands and, and still look reasonably uh, intelligent and competent? Well, the answer is you can't without admitting that you were wrong. And, and this is the biggest problem of all. Russia was not isolated, could never be isolated. Russia's economy is doing extremely well. It would do better without the war, but it's still doing very well. It has no shortage of trade partners, and much of what Russia provides to Europe is still finding its way to Europe through clandestine and illegal means offered by other countries that are willing to provide the middleman. The whole thing is a travesty. The Russians who initially went in exclusively for the purpose 
of reaching some sort of agreement with the West about Eastern Ukraine, about the breakaway republics, discovered that we weren't interested in a solution. We were interested in destroying them. And so they have now mobilized. They've built this enormous force. They're poised to attack. The Ukrainians are falling apart. The question is, what are we going to do? And I think we're not going to do anything until the Russians are probably just across the river from Kiev in great numbers, prepared to cross the Dnieper River and go west. I wish it weren't so, but I think that's that's where we are. The Russians are going to have to make it unambiguously clear that our outrageous demands make no sense. And at that point, there's a real chance that the Europeans will diverge from us because Europe is really being hurt by this war. Everybody in the West is being hurt, but the Europeans, most of all, their economies, their populations have no interest whatsoever in going to war with Russia. If you look at the polling data, they're overwhelmingly for a negotiated settlement. So the bottom line is, how long does this last? It lasts until the Europeans really can't stand it anymore. And we begin to see some European governments fall. We've already seen things change in Italy. Uh, Mr. Macron's position is not that strong. But the, the real weak link at this point is Berlin. And one wonders uh, how much longer Mr. Schultz can hold on to his job. Uh, we had, what, 50,000 protesters in Berlin over the weekend against the war. And somebody said, well, there were still 10,000 that came out to support the war. <laughs> well, I think that's a good demonstration of just where we are. So, I, you know, the, once Berlin falters, and I think it will, because the German people just don't buy it any longer then the world will change. And uh, when Berlin decides to diverge, other European states will fall in line and everyone will say enough is enough. We've got to come to an arrangement. And all wars in Europe, at least for the last 500 to 1,000 years, have been settled with some sort of territorial adjustment, you know, an exchange of land uh, and so forth. So that that's what's got to happen. But Again, neutrality for whatever remains of Ukraine, and that's a good question right now. We don't know what will remain of it, because more than 10 million Ukrainians have left. Uh, there were already 2 million working in the EU before the 10 million left the country. All the Ukrainians that are being interviewed as they came out of Ukraine have all said, we will never go back. Now we add the, the numbers of casualties, which are horrific, and there are any number of different uh, interpretations of numbers, but... The numbers on the Ukrainian side are very large, maybe as many as 200,000 dead by now, another three, 400,000 wounded. Most of these are people that will not recover from their wounds. They, they will be permanently disabled. So th this has got to come to an end. I, I don't think there's much disagreement about it. But Mr. Zelensky is our puppet, and he's not going to give up or, or change his tune until we do. And we're not prepared to do it. So there's yeah. your answer. Uh, two two part question here. So uh, the United States media continues to say uh, Putin is crazy and he doesn't have an off ramp for getting out of this. But we we also see that maybe the United States doesn't have an off ramp for getting out of this. Does this have something to do with uh, Putin's intel saying? This thing will be over in three days, and Joe Biden's intel saying this will be over in three days, uh, and now here we are at the one-year anniversary. I think on the Russian side, uh, it wasn't so much of an intelligence failure as Mr. Putin was convinced that the 
Western allies would ultimately negotiate with him once he made it clear that he was serious. Remember, he's been talking about halting the advance of NATO for almost 20 years. This is not a new topic. He's gone to various Munich security conferences, given speeches, and made it clear that the Russians will not accept NATO's encroachment on its borders. I always find it fanciful that people say, well, they just didn't, the Russians invaded Georgia. Well, the Russians went into Georgia because we were there, and we began making noises suggesting that Georgia, of all places, would become part of NATO. Again, <clears throat> he said, look, Ukraine is off limits. That touches us. We have a strong historical relationship with Ukraine. If you insist on turning this into an extension of NATO and threatening us, we will answer in kind. And so ultimately, he did that. Where he miscalculated, in my judgment, was twofold. First, he said, I'm going to have a negotiating partner. I think he grossly miscalculated the attitude, not just in Kiev, but in London and Washington and Paris. But remember, this is also the same man who was <clears throat> unaware that we had lied to him during the Minsk Accords. Remember, the Minsk Accords were designed to address most of these concerns. Central to the whole Minsk Accords business and to his objections has always been Ukraine's unwillingness to treat Russians as equal citizens before the law in Ukraine. Instead, they've said, either you convert and become Ukrainian, you abandon your language, your culture, and identity, or you can't stay. And they embarked upon this horrible Ukrainianization. And the two republics were taken under fire. They began lobbing artillery into those areas almost immediately after the uh, coup uh, in Ukraine in 2014. So they killed 14,000 people in that area long before Mr. Putin ever intervened. So his point is very valid. They were already at war with us. We were just not at war with them. So yeah, he miscalculated on those skills. And he said in a very small force, he gave instructions to his officers, please don't do anything that will make a peace settlement impossible. We want to live with the Ukrainians. They are brother Slavs. They are Orthodox Christians. His generals shook their heads and said, you know, this is not going to work very well. And he said, well, those are my orders. Minimize collateral damage, minimize casualties. It didn't work. On the Washington side, I, I live here, and so I've talked to lots of people, and I think they were extraordinarily arrogant. And they assumed that, oh, Mr. Putin will never do this. He'll never use force. If he does, it'll be the end of Russia, and he knows that. Well, that was always wrong. They had absolutely ignored everything he said, and now the consequences is this the consequences of the war that we're currently fighting. Okay. Uh, thank you. I appreciate the uh the insight on that. Um I want to talk about uh maybe Russia's next move and Ukraine's next defense. Uh you and Scott Ritter have brought to people's attention that Russia has now upped their game. They are they are pumping out equipment and munitions 24 hours a day. They're building up anywhere from 300,000 to 500,000 uh, soldiers. What do you think is Russia's next move? What do you think is Ukraine's counter move? Well, first of all, the Ukrainians are in a difficult position because they've already exhausted most of their reserves and their manpower on these pointless counterattacks against Russian defenders in southern Ukraine. The Russians went to what I would call an economy of force mission. They pulled in their horns, they consolidated in a smaller area, they built defenses, and then invited the Ukrainians to attack them. 
it's turned into a wonderful outcome for the Russians because the Russians have inflicted enormous losses on the Ukrainians to the point where Ukraine has really bled white. Now they're forcing old men, women, uh, boys into uniform to try and fill the ranks. And as I think a, a former Marine who is currently fighting with the Ukrainians as part of their so-called foreign legion pointed out uh, to several journalists, ex life expectancy on the front in Bakhmut, which has been the center of much of the fighting, is about four hours if you're a new recruit in the Ukrainian army. So the, th this has been a disaster for the Ukrainians. Meanwhile, I think Zelensky and his friends have determined that we have to keep dying in great numbers to persuade the United States and the Western allies that we're a good investment. I don't think that's worked very well. I think the opposite has ultimately occurred. And people now realize Ukrainians have no chance whatsoever of winning. The question is, what can they do? And we're going to try and provide them additional equipment and we're going to scrape the bottom of the barrel and keep hurling them at the Russians. Now, in the meantime, the Russians have taken comparatively few losses. Uh, I said that I thought they'd lost 20 to 25,000 killed and perhaps 40 or 50,000 wounded. There are, there are others out there who say I'm over the top, that uh, in fact the losses are much lower. Now keep in mind that the Russians, when they inflict casualties, most of those casualties are inflicted by artillery systems, rockets, missiles, hard shell ammunition. They can fire thousands and thousands of rounds every day. The Ukrainians cannot. They don't have the ammunition. And all of the artillery systems are much more accurate because of these quadcopters, these small UAVs that fly over the battlefield that are linked to GPS and satellites and immediately transmit the firing data to the batteries. And this is just being devastating to the Ukrainians. The, the rapidity with which the standoff attack weapons can respond is, is uh, really phenomenal. I think the Ukrainians now are not going to be able to do very much except fall back to new defensive positions, hope for the best. And the Russians are going to decide when they think they have enough artillery munitions on hand. And that's one of the things they've been doing, building up their stockpiles. Because the last thing that you want once you embark on in a battle is to discover that you don't have enough ammunition. And if you want to fire 10, 15, 20, 30,000 rounds a day, against your potential opponent in order to keep your casualties down, you got to have a lot of ammunition. So I think there's been a pause in January, not a pause on the battlefield, but with the senior officer said, wait a minute, we're not sure we have enough ammunition for what we want to do in the future. So I think that's part of the reason they've waited. The second part is to see what we do. I think Putin regards us as, in addition to being deceitful and untruthful with him, he also thinks that this administration is dangerous insofar as it's unpredictable and impulsive, that we could impulsively do things that, that could be dangerous to Russia. He now sees the war as not so much a war for Ukraine or for eastern Ukraine or part of Ukraine. He sees this as an existential war for Russia's survival because of all the things that Biden and his friends have been saying about him and Russia. And again, remember... Putin has enormous support in the Russian population. If anything, the Russians are impatient with the way he's handled the conflict. They want him to go in and simply bludgeon everybody in sight and smash Ukraine. He has always been reluctant to do that. He also has another audience that we don't think about. The audience in Africa, Latin America, South Asia, Southeast Asia, China, and all of these states are increasingly sympathetic to him, not us. And he doesn't want to lose their support. 
And he'll lose that if he is seen as sort of ham-handedly butchering vast numbers of Ukrainians. Okay, so on, on the one hand, uh, he, he doesn't just want to go in super heavy-handed and, you know, destroy them, annihilate them, because he'll lose that support. On the other side, if he isn't doing something, he loses the support of the Russian people. Um, and maybe there's a coup attempt or, or, or something like that. I think the coup attempt is nonsense. Uh, okay. I don't think there's any danger to Putin at all. I think he's got a government that is firmly behind him and the population is firmly behind him. Anybody who tries to harm Putin will probably be killed two or three miles away from the Kremlin before they get any, any closer. So I, this is just nonsense. All this business that you hear about, oh, well, Russia's weak and there's internal, that's all nonsense. Just write it off. I saw an article yesterday saying that uh, there were people planning on marching on the Kremlin, and it turned out the man represented a party that in the last election got 0.5% of the vote. Come on. Uh, the West just publishes garbage about Russia on a scale we can't even begin to imagine. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. That's interesting. Okay. In our last uh, interview, uh, we got 1.6 million uh, listeners, uh, very good feedback. One of the things that you had mentioned and that I saw in the comments is you mentioned something about bio labs in Ukraine. You said that's a whole different video or, or interview. What, what did you mean by that? Well, there was something in the neighborhood of 25 or 26 uh, biological laboratories in Ukraine, many of them in very close proximity to Belarusia and the Russian border. Uh, some of those have been taken over, obviously, by the Russians. They've gone in there. They've gotten control of what was there. There's a lot of evidence, I'm told, for work on biowarfare, even genetic work, that was designed to target Slavic peoples, specifically the Slavic population in Russia. Uh, this is very disturbing stuff. Uh, we don't allow this in the United States. It's against the law. But we have been involved in similar laboratories in China and overseas. I mean, everyone, everyone who talks about the, the Chinese invented the evil coronavirus, what they don't bother to point out is that the Chinese we're working in our labs in North Carolina when the Obama administration discovered this gain of function work and said, that's against the law. You can't do it here. So they made provisions to move it to China. And the laboratory that was picked is the one that lost control of the virus, or so we think. And I think that's probably true. And we, we also knew that it was not a level four lab, contrary to popular belief, that there were no level four labs available in China. The best that could be hoped for was level three, but we went ahead anyway. We paid the paid for the research and sent the scientists over there. We have a similar situation in Ukraine. It's it's the Wild West uh, and has been for some time, hopelessly corrupt. You can get just about anything you want for money. For instance, we know there are between 50 and 60,000 Ukrainian children that have gone missing, missing since this war began. We can only begin to imagine the horrors those children must be facing. I mean, Ukraine is not a normal country as we understand it. And it's weaker now and more confused and chaotic now than ever. So these laboratories seem to have represented a real threat to the Russians. And that's one of the things that the Russians have wasted no time uh, examining and exploring. I don't know all the details. What I've told you is about all that I know. 
how much Hunter Biden and, and other members of the family were involved with this, I have no idea. But again, the opportunity to stick your hand in somebody's pocket in Ukraine and pull cash out is just limitless. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I remember uh, Victoria Newland testifying uh, under oath within the last few months, and uh, Senator Marco Rubio kind of set her up saying, you know, okay, so the, these do exist, but if something were to leak out of them or go wrong, that would be Russia's fault, right? Like immediately setting Russia up, even though they're, you know, keeping that information under lock and key heavily. Yeah, listen, all of these people have been economical with the truth from the very beginning. Uh, not, almost nothing that the American people in the West have been told about this war is accurate. So, you know, here we are, and you've got Mr. Putin has concluded, and most of the Russians have, that our goal is the destruction of his country, not just his removal, but its destruction and its dismemberment. We've got lots of people in Washington talking openly about that, whether it's Lindsey Graham or anybody else. Remember, Russia is rich in resources. Now, there are lots of people who would like to get involved with it and rape the place and take whatever they can and profit from it. This is essentially the environment in which Putin rose to the presidency. When he came to the presidency, Russia was prostrate. Prostrate. It was lying on its back, being butchered by everyone in sight. Many of those people are now in New York City and London. And Putin either booted them out or they left before they could be arrested and punished. This is, a, this is an ugly story. There are reasons why these things are happening. And most of them have nothing to do with liberal democracy or our supposed values, whatever they are, since we continually ignore international law whenever it suits us to do so.